Efka. That is my name. Do Answer. not wear it out. Why not? Because... You can't wear it out. Yes, you can't you wear can. out a name. No, you can't. You say it too you much. You can annoy someone by saying it too much. Well, that's part of it. Yeah, definitely wearing it out. Anyway, Efka, yeah, I have a question. Yeah, that's my name. I have a question. Tell me this. Right, you're smart. Why is <laughs> there not more board game fan fiction? Ooh. I would read stuff that was a, a board game fan fiction. Elaine, we're struggling with board game fiction to begin with. How are we going to get to fan fiction when... Okay, okay. So I distinctly remember there was a game by Alexander Pfister called Tyball the Builder that built itself a story card game. Mm -hmm. And I remember reading chapter one of Tybor the Builder and the story part. And the, the story part was... This is not going to be verbatim, but very, very close to verbatim. Right, okay. This is Tybor. He is a builder. <laughs> he he lives in this village. I, I think the I'm not sure the game is was called Tybor. The, some it was something Tybor from somewhere. Okay. Anyway, he <laughs> lives in this place. The yes, end. It's like baby's first board game fan yeah. fiction. And and that was a story. You know that that was a board game story, and that's not that long ago, circa 2016, something like that. But that was a story in a board game. We have lots of those, and I appreciate those very much. But I mean, like, so say you had a game of Catan that mm -hmm. kind of, but it was a fiction book, novel, you know, yeah. or, or small novel, whatever you call it. I think it, they're doing that now. That that told you. A kind of game of Catan, a bit like, uh, you know, Alice's, uh, no, Alice Through the Looking Glass was based on chess. And it wasn't really a chess game, but but the moves, the, the way that Alice went and wh where she moved, it was kind of around the board and she ended up being a queen because she'd ended up on that furthest square. So I recently watched the Super Mario Brothers film, uh -huh. the new one, not the old one. Oh, not the Bob Hoskins one. No, because nobody likes that one. I like that one. Because it's got Bob Hoskins. He, I wanted him to play me if I, you know, if I okay. ever become famous enough to have someone play me in a film. I wanted, wanted it to be Bob Hoskins. <laughs> that, that's not a possibility anymore. Has to just, be Danny just, DeVito now. Just to the audience right now, not to Elaine. Uh, listen, I live with Elaine, so uh, I will tell you straight up. She does not remember a single thing about the old Super Mario Brothers I film. <laughs> no, you don't. Because if you remembered a thing, you would be like, what is this? Because I remember you watching it with me and going, what is this? That's not how I remember this film. And then we watched it and you were like, okay, that was poo. And then you forgot about it. And, and, and now you're going, I love the old Super Mario Brothers film. It has Bob Hoskins in it. Well, yeah, all right. Maybe I'm looking through some kind of rose-coloured glasses there. One hundred percent. But still. Okay, okay. So, so the, I recently watched the new Super Mario yeah. Brothers film, right? And in my opinion, it's about as good as the old one, right? Oh. <laughs> okay. And because it, a lot of it is just nonsensical narrative that starts with two plumbers in New York, you know, that are Mario and Luigi who do an advert where they do a lot of their catchphrases and then they go into this magical mushroom kingdom world with Peach and Bowser and all of that and Toad and then they do all the bits from the video games, right? So a Catan fiction, not even talking about fan fiction, a lot of it is just going to be 
Wood for sheep. Hey, 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 wood for sheep. Wood for sheep. No, it could be cleverer than that. That's You know, I know I, I wrote a few little bits of it fan could be. fiction. It right? wouldn't. I wrote a few little bits of fan fiction, uh, mm. some of which I read you for that quiz in the bonus episode that we did once. Yes. Um, and, you know, that wasn't very good because I'm not a writer particularly, right? But I'm not a very good writer. Uh, or a confident writer, but if there was someone who was a really good writer, I think they could really do justice on a game. But why would they? They could write anything else. Well, this is true. All right. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, you would... Okay, it would have to be a magical combination of someone really loving a game and also being a talented writer. And by talented, I don't mean like inherently someone who knows you know, and practices the craft. And then also have the time and will and dedication to do this. If this ever happens, I'm sold. I, I'm there, you know? If Adrian Tchaikovsky writes a <laughs> writes a board game fanfic piece, I, I'm, you know, I'm sign me up or any other writer who's into board games. Welcome to Talk Cardboard, a podcast about board games and everything adjacent with me, Elaine, and you... Me, Efka. On today's show, we'll be creating a solo civilization in Ancient Realm, discussing video-turned-board-game Dorf Romantic and getting our Sharpies out in Eon's End Legacy of Gravehold, as well as having an interview with someone whose favourite Bill Murray film is Ghostbusters, Andrew Navarro. You dug, him so, dug out some factoids about Andrew Navarro. Yeah, one factoid. Well, well done. First, though, let's look at the things you've been saying to us. We had a huge amount of correspondence and discussion regarding Obsession, which we spoke about in the last episode. Thank you to Trixie, Latro, Tom and Roger, who all got in touch with us to let us know that Jane Austen was writing in the Regency era and was not a Victorian. The game, though, is very much set in the Victorian era. That's why there is that confusion. And also riffs on Austen, so... the. Yeah, what's what's really weird though for for me was so I because I don't really know much about Jane Austen or I didn't until we had all this correspondence. Uh, I didn't know when she was writing. Mm. So when I looked at the game and it's called you know Pride and Prejudice blah 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 whatever it's called, I thought when is this game from? And I looked her up and she was writing in like seventeen fifty, mm. right? And I thought, ah, is the Union flag represented wrong? Because there is Union flags on the in the in the game, and our current Union flag or Union Jack that we have now wasn't used till eighteen oh one. I know this, right? Mm. Um, but the and the one in the game is the one that we use now. So I thought, have they got this wrong? But then when I read through the kind of not the rule book exactly, but the like fluff in the rule book. Mm -hmm. It is very much set in 1850, which is Victorian and, and is, you know, the flag is correct for that period. So I thought the game designer had just taken some artistic liberties with that. Mm. You know, you know, like you have um, something that's Shakespearean that's set now or, you know, anything that's sort of updated or mm. set in a slightly different time period. But that's really bothered a lot of people, I think, the fact that reviewers and and other people that are talking about this game obsession have said that you know have conflated the two eras right but the game conflates the two eras right exactly exactly it's it's very strange mm. it's a strange situation because you know it it does literally say pride prejudice and then something yeah, else i know that's in, the, i couldn't remember either. in in the victorian era right yeah. so that is literally taking two things that are not from the same period 
and mashing them together. There was also some disagreement on the theme uh, of this game, but the general consensus was that for a lot of people, it might feel off-putting, but is not inherently problematic. And when playing it, the irrationality of what you're doing needs to be taken into consideration, right? So Oz says... Perhaps what bothers me is precisely that Obsession's portrayal is open-ended. It's not possible to wade into Victorian England without involving different subjects. See, the discuss how colonialism is going in the parlour tile. And I prefer it when media takes a definitive stance over such things personally, and I myself do not feel Obsession takes a clear enough stance. But Lizard King says, I don't have any claim to the designer's intent, but what we play it for is the absurdity of the table talk. Instead of being masters of the universe, vying for ultimate economic supremacy, we're bloodying each other over lawn bowling for a crack at a date with a fair child. Because unfortunately, being a business tycoon or a general is viewed as inherently dignified and the people making decisions in obsession are also viewed that way by a lot of people from a distance. But when you get to the nuts and bolts of how they did their thing, you sound like a clown saying, clown things and getting worked up over clown problems and that is where the fun resides for me where the theme really comes alive we also asked didn't we uh for anyone that knows about jane austen to let us know kind of what we were missing mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. in the link between jane austen and obsession and stefan wrote a very thorough email from their wife who is a big jane austen fan they say the light in Jane Austen books is love and friendship to steal the title of one of her early books. Within the system, and that's important, within the rules of the obsession game, if you love someone, if you like someone sincerely, or if you trust and admire them, you can help them move through the system faster. The worthy people can ignore the rules and directly jump onto a higher level. The whole system can bend a little for them. Miss Taylor, the trusted, clever, kind governess, makes a good marriage and she stays the dear friend of Emma Woodhouse, who is, in obsession terms, at least four reputation levels above her. Mr Darcy marries the relatively poor Elizabeth Bennet. The rich and respectable Mr Knightley could have married the impoverished Jane Fairfax. Let's note that he doesn't. Elizabeth Bennet, a gentleman's daughter, is the best friend of Charlotte Lucas, the daughter of a tradesman. This is the light that Jane Austen brings into the dark system of the obsession game. People matter. Feelings matter, moral worth matters. So I find that I find that pretty interesting. So Jane Austen, I still don't quite have an idea of her work um, because it seems to be quite divisive between people. Yeah, I'm getting an impression that that people take away different things from it. Yeah, and some people I think very rightly criticize her work, uh, and some people find you know positive aspects in her work. Uh, I myself am. Sort of, you know, uh, from from stuff that is of a history that I'm not familiar and uh, with because I didn't grow up here, so I don't know much about that period of England. Uh, I mean, they don't really teach about Regency England in in history anyway, mm. or at least they didn't when I was at school. And and I, I take tend to take away the big themes, you know, and, and what are the big sort of thematic points of what a piece is trying to say and and for me like uh you know from from having now a little osmosis with her work i i get like love for 
not wealth, you know, for not for status, but for, you know, what you truly feel. Uh, but but I, I get that, you know, from people writing in that that's not necessarily always the case in her work. Uh, and and it's certainly even just from uh, watching Sense and Sensibility, you know, I got that some of it was a little bit like, well, you know, as long as we're doing fine. Yeah, like I think I think that last comment uh, helped me to get a better idea of what she is actually like in her writing. So status is important, but you don't have to start with status. You can work up to it. If you're mm. friends with someone or if you want to help someone reach higher levels, you can. Mm. And and I think that's what she was trying to say a little bit. And But for me, that still doesn't sit very well because it still says if you're poor and not a very important person you're not really worth a lot i don't yeah. know i don't know it, it has negative vibes for me yeah yeah definitely and and i guess it puts into context things like kazuo shiguro's uh the remains of the day because it like in obsession i guess let's let's give it credit there in her work the the staff aren't they, they are named because i remember in sense and sensibility at the very beginning you know the servants are given names but they're not mentioned much again at least mm. in the film i don't like yeah never read the books you know um but then when you read the remains of the day it's like oh wait no it's all about that right and it's completely reframing that uh, and, mm. and and i think it's very much in conversation with austin uh, again not an expert please do not you know do not take my words as any kind of authoritative statement just speculation i mean we could have had an entire episode just on obsession comments so i just had to pick a couple out but thank you so much for everyone that, that wrote in about that and if you've got anything to say to us in the future you can email us elaine at no pun included.com still to come we have door romantic and eon's end legacy of gravehold as well as an interview with the multi-talented andrew navero but first a solo game of civilization hey we played a solo game individually both of us the same solo game i played it solo you played it solo we both played it solo and we each have our own different impressions how about that we do ancient realm comes from publisher buttonshy by designer stephen aramini with art by start Raphael talbot so as any buttonshy game it's uh, small it's small it comes in a wallet there's only 18 cards is this one good yes as a matter of fact at the same time, they released two Steve Aramini games. Uh, it was River Wild and Ancient Civilizations. Let me tell you immediately, River Wild's a dud, <laughs> but this one's I not. I have played that, so I can't. I have. It's that. it's not good. Because you played it and went, ah, don't bother. <laughs> yeah, do not bother, right? But this one's good. And uh, if you've heard the designer's name before, it's because this is the designer for Sprawlopolis, and that is one of Button Shy's biggest hits. So. Is this 18-card wallet worth it? Okay, I don't know about you. For me, this was not top-tier button shy, but it was, like, close to top-tier. If there's an S-tier and an A-tier, this is A-tier. What's S and A? You know, like, S is the highest tier. Why, why is it S? Just the internet. That's how it oh, works. Oh, really? Is it? Yeah. Oh, I've learned a thing. Get, get with the program. All right, sorry. <laughs> anyway, how do you feel uh, about... about is this Is this one of the better ones, or...? I, yeah, I I enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if it's a top tier button shy for me though. 
yeah. or, or a, a near top tier button shy for me. It was fine. It worked. But I think you played it with a lot more thought into it. Like you, you poured over every decision that you made to squeeze all the points you could out of this game. And I've, didn't I played it much more loosely and much more freely and like oh what happens if I put this on here what happens if I do this uh, and I didn't score that well and I think the way that you play I don't want to say that there's like a right way and a wrong way to play a game because that's that's a daft thing to yeah. say but yeah I think I probably didn't get as much out of it as you did you're burying the lead Elaine so your, your score is bracketed in this Shush. game your score is bracketed <laughs> so if you get a certain number of points you get like a title of how well you've done. And so what was yours? I can't, what was it? Hopeless or something? Ruinous. Ruinous. Your yeah. civilization was ruinous. <laughs> and what was mine, Elaine? Uh, legendary. Yeah, that's right. Legendary. Mine was legendary. So, you know, I will stop bragging and uh, making fun of you and tell people what Ancient Civilizations is about. Please do. So, it's a fun game uh, of trying to squeeze out the most points out of your civilization. You have some cards, and you have some other cards, and you also have some cards to track your resources. So, in this game, you have four resources. You have money, wood, wheat, stone. You use the wood, wheat, and stone to build things, and you use the money to pay for things. What a novel concept. But you also have these two decks of cards. And these two decks of cards, they, they all have like the same things almost. Uh, like each card has these columns. And normally a card has three columns. And these columns are like characters or places. So for example, it could be like a wheat field or a tax collector or the queen, right? Uh, and... The, the the reason they're separated into two decks is because the deck on the left side of the table is there's always three columns, right? And each card has these three columns and they could be any kind of things, right? But on the right side, the cards functionally are the same, except there's only two columns because one column is double the size. And that is... A wonder. A wonder? Right, okay. The, the term is a wonder. And so this wonder... It's like a wonder of the world. Yeah, it is is a big scoring opportunity thing, right? And is the only thing in the game that costs resources to build. But the point is that when you build, uh, you put the you choose any card that's available. So you put four out to begin with, two wonders and two of the other cards. Yeah. Uh, you choose any card and you put it into play. If the card does have a wonder, you have to pay resources for it. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And you put it in one horizontal row above. So you're kind of uh, like building outwards. You know, you, you can put a card to the left of the cards you have or to the right of the cards you have. But also you can overlay these columns. Blimey. And, and the trick is that the things that you put out, they don't do anything unless they're a wonder until you cover them up with another card and that's the really weird and kooky thing that really requires you to wrap your brain around because you look at a card and you go like oh there's the tax collector i play the tax collector card uh, it also has like a wheat field and then maybe you know the queen that'll give me all these things give me bonus no they don't you play them into the territory and then only when you cover it up that's when they actually give you bonuses and once you cover them up, you don't have them anymore, obviously. And there's also other things that 
score your points. For example, there's two types of citizens. So there's like ones with a crown and ones with a hood, right? And, and and like there's blue and red. Yeah, blue and red, right? And then it says, oh, hey, for each uh, citizen of one type, you get three points. And you're like, okay, so I want more citizens. But those citizens are the things that give you money or give you resources to actually build the wonder. So there's this constant, te constant tension because you need to cover up the things that you want to have to get the things to build the things that you want to have. And then you build them and you need to cover them up again to get the... And it goes on and on and on. But again, remember, there's only like 14 cards in the game because four of the cards track your resources. So there's not that many cards. No. And, and you need to squeeze out a lot of points from these cards. And that's where the puzzle comes in. And uh, yeah, it required a lot of brain work. And I think, I think you succinctly described the issue with the game is that if you play it lackadaisically... <laughs> <laughs> you will be ruinous or if you sit down and just crunch and crunch and crunch and crunch i thought it might be a contender for waiter waiter there's a cardboard in my cereal uh -huh. but it absolutely was not i thought it was going to be a nice easy breakfast type flowy game that i could play while i wasn't quite awake yet it was not Oh well, it was, but then I yeah. did ruinously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. It's it's pretty crunchy, right? If you wanna if you wanna squeeze out the points, uh, you 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 gotta do it. Uh, you gotta crunch. You gotta commit to thinking about like every last bit of consequence that your actions will lead to. What we haven't mentioned yet is the abilities on the cards as mm -hmm. well. So on the backs of the non wonder deck of cards. Uh, there are certain like bonuses that it gives you while that card is still face down. Because so, yes. so, it's on the back, the bonus is on the back. So whilst that card is not yet in the play area, uh, it will it will say like, you know, you may reconvert one resource to another resource. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have to take that into consideration as well. Yeah. Uh, so and there's a lot to think about. And each time you play a card, you have to draw from one of the decks, your choice which. But if you draw too many wonders, then... You're not going to be able to pay for them. Yeah, you're stuck with cards that you have to pay resources for, which are really hard to generate. You are not going to have the wedge to be able to get that yeah. wonder out. So on the game where I got legendary, and I didn't just get legendary because the range is from something like 55 to 70 or something like that. So that's like ruinous is everything up to like... No, I think it was like 47. Well, I got, yeah. so I, no, it's 49. I got 48. Yeah. Uh, and Ruinous Boundary was 49. Right. And Legendary is 70, right? Yeah. And I got 81 points in yeah, that I game. I know you did. That, that was, <laughs> and that was the first game I played. I didn't do anywhere as well. Uh, playing it again. Yeah, playing yeah. it again. But the reason that worked out for me was that I spent a lot of time just accruing resources and sort of eking out leaving like little bits of scoring columns and like just the right ones and then the very last card on the non-monument deck had the ability that said um like every wonder is discounted by one so when it came time to build wonders it works out well i was just like okay i'm just gonna draw from the wonder deck and i you know i i kept managing to cover up bits that propelled me further i also had another wonder that said whenever i build a wonder i get another free resource and it's like that's not quite enough to pay for the next wonder because at minimum they they require four resources is that true yeah yeah i think so and so it it doesn't it doesn't break even or anything like that but what that was like the perfect last card uh <laughs> to give me like a cool ability and i was just like i'm i'm really milking this for everything it's got 
uh, and I came out with a lot of points and I was pretty happy. But then I realized that on my first game, I didn't just beat the high score. Well, not the high score, but like, you know, the threshold for, you know, what is considered a good score. I sort of tranced it and I was like, oh, is this going to be one of those games where it's just like, it's just, you know, you have to really crunch. No, games can, can play out quite differently. Whereas I, yeah. I uh, would want to try and get better at my score. You know, mm. so, mm. yeah, I don't know. It so. deflated the game a little bit for me, right? But also, okay, so I think for me, that looseness, and, and I guess it's endemic to Sprolopolis as well, um, is it, sort of what, what knocks it down a peg a little bit from that, you know, button shy S tier, which is games like Rove. I think Rove is really, really good. Yeah. I think Unsurmountable is an underrated one that a lot of a lot of people don't, value as highly as it should be i think it's better than food chain island which is the other scott Alms solo game that is very popular from button shy uh i also really like skulls of sedlec a lot mm -hmm. of people like skulls mm -hmm. of sedlec those are really nice button shy wallet games um you know this 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 is maybe not as good as those rove especially because rove doesn't give you the option not to crunch you crunch or you lose mm. right and i think that makes it different and makes it feel different but but it's definitely in in that sort of same tier as I was gonna say um, Space Corp, but it's better than Space Corp. I I think it's like Food Chain Island, maybe about that tier. If you've never heard of Button Shy, once again they put eighteen cards in the wallet, and that's the game. And you can buy the wallet. They sometimes come with expansions. I generally don't like their expansions because I think they dilute the core idea, which already works really well. So don't necessarily spring out for those but but 18 cards in the wallet cool idea sometimes work sometimes doesn't this one does it's good i liked it patrick wrote us an email to let us know how our work has influenced theirs which i thought was quite lovely oh. uh, saying that what we do has in part been inspiration for a college course they're going to be running right they go on to talk about a book called wonderland by stephen johnson they say in the chapter on games, Johnson takes a deep dive on Monopoly and repeats the story that you related on the 727 podcast about the original intentions of the designer, Elizabeth Maggie. Johnson includes an additional wrinkle that was unknown to me and appears to be unknown to you as well. The original rules to the landlord's game were geared to critiquing current property and taxation policies and appears to have been meant to play cooperatively. I may be misremembering that detail. A variant set of rules emerged to make the game competitive and more fun. This was a set of rules that eventually made it into the modern day version. So the failure of Monopoly to teach Elizabeth's intended lesson is not really her fault, beyond the original game not being that much fun. Apparently her original intent was thwarted by rules changes and house variants. Isn't that funny how that's always the I way know. it works? I never knew that. I never knew that the Lionel no. game was... A cooperative game originally, but it makes a lot of sense, actually. And and maybe, you know, does kind of make it work as parody. But then again, my experience of, of board games that work as parody is that they often don't work well as board games. And there you go, house rules. Well, I mean, you're always going to get someone that interprets a parody as serious and, and mm. takes that on. Like if something is satirical mm. and 
makes fun of something, there will always be people that go, oh, no, that's actually, that's that's a really good idea. That's how I want to behave or that's what I want to do. I mean, that's with any satire that happens exactly. now. Sorry, I'm not just yeah. talking about board games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so as this game is quite old, you mm. know, it's one of those things that is going to have happened. Well, that was fascinating. Thank you very much for writing in. Still to come, we have an interview with the brilliant Andrew Navarro and our impressions of Eon's Lend Legacy of Gravehold. But first, we're rippling rivers, rustling forests and fielding wheat. Dorf Romantic comes from publisher Pegasus Spiel by designers Michael Palm and Luca Zack with art by Paul Reber. It is important to note that whilst Dorf Romantic the board game is not a review copy sent to us, we have acquired this game ourselves, the video game that Dorf Romantic the board game is based on that we played in the past was a review key that was sent to us by the video game's original publisher. I think it's important to disclose this. So, I think so too. So this murky is, ground. Yeah, murky ground, not a review copy, but in the past, there was a related review copy. So, Dove Romantic, the board game, won Spiel des Jahres this year. And I was like, really? Because I played it, you know, the video game, not the board game. Uh, and from what I heard, it was a pretty faithful recreation of the video game. And for me, always Dove Romantic, whilst enjoyable, felt like a flash in the pan. Like, it was of its time. It released in January 2021. It was very much a lockdown baby, you know, and a lockdown hit. Uh, you know, it's kind of like, the world's too much. I just want to lay some chill tiles, make a chill village. Because Dorf means village in German. And I don't think I need to translate the romantic part. Um, it's clear what's happening. We're loving a village. And... I was like, okay, it was fine for for its time, right? And 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 now there's a board game, and it's apparently winning Spiel des Jahres. So so we had to try it, and you've not played the video game. No, I watched you play it, mm. but I haven't played it myself. Elaine, I want to hear your thoughts. Do you like Dorf Romantic? Oh, is it, do you want me to say more? Like, I was hoping for, like, more enthusiasm. Like, yeah, it was great. Because I felt like, yeah, this is great. I, I enjoyed the campaign element of it. I think if it would have been a standalone game, I would have been like, okay, this is this is cute. This is fun. Okay, I'm done. But because it is a campaign game, uh, there's more to come. Mm. And I think that pull of there being more to come is exciting so let me briefly describe what it is it's kind of weird to describe what it is because it is it is a thing of its own it is a tile laying game you have hexagonal tiles they represent various aspects of the board game idea of a village you know uh, like there's some tiles with cities there's some tiles with forests there's some tiles with fields there's some tiles with rivers and trains and you Tracks. draw a tile yeah and you have to put it next to the other tiles that you've already put down and hopefully they match up and you know because one tile features multiple terrains and various configurations some edges are village some are forest and you want to you know make them conjoin generally not necessarily most of the time you want them to conjoin you don't have to but what happens is this weird game of perfectionism where you can never be perfect like i guess the way i would describe dwarf romantic is Chill time with tiles where you want to be as good as possible, but you know that you can't, so you make best do the board game. 
I think it benefited from being cooperative. Oh, uh, I think that's the big selling point, really. Because I think if it would have been competitive, it wouldn't have been half as much fun because we mm. were puzzling over it together. Yeah, th- uh, I think that's the fun of it because it's like um, every every turn, all you do is you draw a tile from a pile and you go, where do I put this, right? And normally, like in games like Hawkinson or whatever, it's like your own puzzle, right? And now you flip a tile and everyone sees that tile and everyone goes... Oh yeah, where do we put this, mm. right? And, and everyone sees it. It's not like it's it's not like it's in a game where you have to try and place the tile first, mm-hmm. uh, and then everyone goes no, or there's some kind of mechanism where you can speak to each other or can't speak to each other. Like yeah. you can just freely talk about where you're going to put it. You just show everyone and go, where should we put this? If you were the one that drew that tile, you have last say. You can mm-hmm. you can veto everyone else and, and spoil mm-hmm. the game if you want to. Don't play this with toxic people. No, basically, no, don't. No. Uh, well, don't play anything with toxic people. No, really. that's true. That's but general, this is this is you know goal. where where the where used to be this criticism of co-op games or the you know oh does it have the alpha gamer problem right the alpha gamer problem does not exist what exists is toxic people but this game is prone to being abused by toxic people is what i'm saying yeah and it is a lovely light-hearted game that you wouldn't want to be playing with hideous people anyway no yeah this is (laughs) this is this is great for people who already know they enjoy each other's company and they can just sort of chill out together and be like oh this goes here and this goes here but the really nice points of tension of it is this sort of duality there's two piles there's one pile that's just tiles they have things that are like features right and then this other pile it's the same tiles but also they come with a quest (laughs) so you'll flip a tile and it'll say oh this is a river quest then you'll flip a random river tile they'll have a number between four and six and that basically says you want this river to be between like if it's a four you want this river to be specifically four long so you already have three river length tiles conjoining together you could just put that on in in the front of them and auto-complete auto-complete what do you get out of that you get to take that four and you it's going in your score pile right and every there's always free quests available anytime you complete one you draw a new tile from the quest pile make a new quest and there's always like these sort of little goals but what's really clever like you said is the campaign system Mm. because if it was just a game on its own i i would you know play that and go and this was nice and i had a nice time it would just be a nice puzzle game that that you played and went away from probably yeah maybe a slightly more forgettable yeah but now there's this score pad and unlocks and (laughs) boxes and and really strangely like normally the campaign bit isn't what would do it for me right but here it really does because so for example our score was 147 i think in the first game right and then we got to climb on up on this track and that unlocked like this box and unlocked certain achievements and it now said oh hey these things are now available in the game and you can incorporate them into your game and should and you know they provide new scoring opportunities there's new quest tiles and stuff like that um so there's more points available but also it was very clear what we've done wrong we've completed every single quest in the game that was available but you also but score that's all we've done that's all we've done you also score for the longest road the longest railroad and also you get to if you the longest river and the longest railroad sorry i got that wrong the longest river and longest railroad but you also 
uh, score points for the largest completed forest in field and city. You know, so there's these extraneous scoring opportunities that we didn't focus on that much. We didn't get many points from them. So I was like, okay, we've done probably okay, but I can see where we could have done better. And then I looked at the score chart and it went from 100 to 400. The thing was, right, you, uh, be, probably because you were riding on some sort of ancient realms high. Yeah. When you looked at it, you thought, oh, we're nearly, like, we nearly got the highest score that you can possibly get. And then you realized you were looking at it kind of upside down. It, uh, it flowed the other way. The mm. scoring flowed the other way. So you're like, oh, right, we're right at the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I was like, how? How do you even do this? Right. And then you realize that through these various unlocks, which there's only like five boxes, but within them, there's these achievements that say, if in this game you do this, you unlock a new element of the game. And from now on, this is true. And it's like, oh, right, I get it. There's actually only like five boxes, but each game you have an opportunity to do something that you haven't done before and like a goal to shoot for. So suddenly this chill time with you know your partner or your good friend or you know a couple of other good friends maybe because it goes up to four i think right uh you know becomes chill time with a purpose hey this game let's attempt this right and it's really nice there's something immediately nice about this it does go up to four but i don't see why if there was a fifth person you couldn't squeeze them in i don't I think guess. that would break the game because yeah. all you're doing is turning over a tile and seeing where to place it yeah so, i guess maybe it's just you know becomes a bit unruly at <laughs> maybe, yeah. yeah i'm looking forward to playing more of this and and going through the campaign we played two games we unlocked some things and our second game on the first game we got 147 on our second game we got 146 <laughs> yes we did we did worse we did slightly worse but we took a different strategy yeah that we think maybe we can build on in the future and, and also uh, there's like new goals that we yeah. unlocked and 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 suddenly we're like oh hey next game we're gonna try this so we're gonna come back to dwarf romantic in video format because it was that good we really liked it it is not outwardly anything special but as a package, for a specific reason, for a specific time, I think it's wonderful. It's just really, really nice. My couple of criticisms. Um, strangely, so one of the things that the video game was known for, apart from, like, its tremendous title, is, like, really lovely soundtrack, really lovely artwork. Mm. It would have been nice if there was some sort of, like, at least, I don't know, a QR code to the soundtrack Ooh. available. You know, that, that maybe nice... Maybe get the licensing for it. Maybe, I don't know. Uh, you know, that chill Dorf Romantic music, if it was available to anyone who bought the board game, you know, somewhere online, that would have been nice. Uh, maybe it's in there. Maybe I missed it. If 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 so, please write in, correct us. Um, but, but also, somehow the artwork is just a little flatter and blander than the video game. Whereas it looks like most of it is just like almost almost the same assets, but there's something just duller about it. I quite like the artwork because there's a lot of little bits to spot on it. You oh no, the, the artwork is nice, but I'm 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 talking about the color pla palette. Right. It's duller, right? Okay. It, it's it's slightly more muted and less pop, and it doesn't feel as vibrant and as colorful uh, as the video game, which. I don't know. It just in comparison, feels strange. Maybe that's you know something to do with how they printed it, or like the you know uh, approachability and accessibility issues. 
Maybe. I will say that there is red and green in the game because forests are green and houses are red, but they're mm. easy to sell apart because one is a house and one is a tree. Mm. So, like, there's, I don't think there's is a problem For, there. like, colour vision difference. Right. Yeah. I liked it. Me too. Looking forward to making a video about it. Just before we go on to our interview with Andrew Navarro, last episode, I asked Efka, that's you, which known director would you like to see direct a no pun included video? We had some thoughts oh, no. on that, some oh. correspondence oh, no, on that. No, no, no. Jeep says, if Paul Thomas Anderson can become obsessed with directing high music videos, I think Damien Chazelle directing a board game review isn't out of the question. And Isaac says... Uh, an oink game directed by Wes Anderson or a video essay on civilization building games directed by Ken Burns. <coughs> and Rapide says uh, a review of Hegemony directed by Yasujiro Ozu. How would that even work? <laughs> I, I found it funny that there was Wes Anderson and Yasujiro Ozu who have been compared in the past. And I like yeah. both of them as directors. I've been meaning to watch some Ozu lately. Yeah. I was like, it's been a while. Yeah. So I think that's quite fine. Maybe that's the kind of vibe that people get from our videos. I hope so. That would be great. <laughs> that, they, that our videos would be great okay, to be directed I'm, by those people. I'm just going to stay tight-lipped about this. That. Mm. I'm, I'm going to take that as a win. We, You know, I feel like there's not many wins. Okay. I'm going to take that one. But Peter says... You need a director who can do both comedy and drama. So how about Steven Spielberg? I think he no. could do a good job of it. I know you probably say that Spielberg is a bit too epic, but he can also do small intimate scenes like in E.T., Always or The Fableman. So I think you should give him a chance. So that's one thing. Then they go on to say, there is also something else to consider, which is that the right director for an Elaine-specific or Efka-specific video might be different than a director from an NPI video. So I think that a great director for an Efka-specific video would be Orson Welles. A great director for an Elaine-specific video would, of course, be Charlie Chaplin. I thought that was a great comment. Um, I, actually, I, I love Ida Lupino, so I would have liked her to direct one of our videos only because I would love to have met her. Uh, but Chaplin, yeah, definitely as well. Um, oh. But uh, he wasn't a very nice person, so maybe not. But, uh, I mean, we kind of had uh, a clownish video when we did uh, Meeple Circus. Yeah. The, the beginning of it, we did we the did. skit. And it was almost Chaplin-esque. Yeah, I butched um, the editing on that. And, um, well, we were young. Yeah, we were young. Listen, <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak. Uh, I Please was do. not going to say anything, but now I am going to. Not Spielberg. I have to, I guess, admit that I don't like Spielberg. And I think Fableman's actually was recently the film that perfectly highlights everything that I don't like about Spielberg. And I'm sorry, but Michelle Williams being nominated for that, that was the worst tropes of, of, of a person okay. who has, you know, difficulties with mental health just embodied um, in, in acting. Um, I did not like it. I didn't like the bit at the end, the very last bit. Everyone knows what I'm talking about. If you've seen The Fablemans, uh, that was a good bit. Oh, I, I did like Empire of Light, which was a film that came out around the same time about the same kind of similar subject. It was just Sam Bendis, not Spielberg. And also James Gray did Armageddon Time. I think that was 
in the middle between those two. Empire of Light, great. Armageddon Time, good. Fablements, no. Thank you so much for your comments. If you want to write to us, it's Elaine at nopunincluded.com. Still to come, we have Eon's end legacy of Gravehold, but now let's talk cardboard with Andrew Navarro. I want to preface this interview, actually, just before we start. So this interview is specifically relating to Earthborn Rangers, which is a game published by Earthborn Games, which is the publishing house that Andrew Navarro is the head of. And the reason we're interviewing Andrew Navarro is because, as it'll become very evident in the interview, uh, the main idea behind that game and its publishing model was to make it as sustainable as possible. Let's find out how that went. Delighted to welcome to the show Andrew Navarro. You might know Andrew as the previous head of studio at Fantasy Flight Games and the current head of studio at Earthborn Games, publishers of the up- upcoming Earthborn Rangers, for which Andrew is also one of the designers. Andrew, I invited you over to talk cardboard, but also specifically to talk sustainable cardboard. So is this a thing? Is sustainable cardboard a thing? Can we have it? Can, can we, <laughs> you know... Because I think a lot of people want it. Can we have it? Yeah, absolutely. It can be. It can be done. Yep. We've. We are. We are living proof uh, that it can be done. I'd love to get into this more, but first, I kind of. I want to know the origins of this. So, what gave you this idea? You know, how did it come about? What made you go right? No, we're doing this. Yeah. Well, it started uh, back probably my last year working for Asmodee, and you know, Asmodee owns uh, owns FFG. Uh, I was head of the studio for, uh, about three years, um, but only for about two and a half before I decided to leave. Um, but, uh, in that last year, uh, I had been talking a lot with, uh, one of my coworkers, uh, another executive at the company named Michael Hurley, and he was, uh, on the Asmodee side and he was responsible for, um, overseeing production a lot of time. And he would often like look to trying, try, try to do more sustainable things um, and just explore it. And he was kind of interested in that. So we'd talk about uh, what could be done. Uh, but we always ran up against the issue of, of budget. Um, mm. The most important thing when designing products from a business side in a company like Asmodee is the margin. And... Uh, that's the you know the profit margin. So you know the amount of money that you put into the 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 product, be that in development or materials, uh, needs to have a retail price or more specifically a distributor price that uh, gets you a decent amount of profit. And that amount of profit can vary based on you know whatever company you're working for. They have everyone has their own uh, has their own standards for that. Um, but so at Asmodee and at FFG, it was pretty flexible. Like oftentimes we were able to uh, eat into that margin if it meant making a cooler product, but we were not really allowed to move into that margin for what would be considered um, maybe sustainability goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, it, you know, if you, if you say, if you wanted to do like wood instead of plastic, uh, if we could do it in plastic, we do it in plastic because mm-hmm. it's just so much cheaper. So uh, 
that was really a, a barrier that we we found. It was it, it was something that we didn't really push a whole lot for at the time because you know, like I said, we have goals we're trying to meet, so it wasn't really possible for us to make those changes um, at Asmin, at least from the FFG side. Maybe some larger companies. I know that uh, the Catan Studio works really hard to try to do things more sustainably, and they have a little bit more or a lot more weight to throw around than mm-hmm. uh, than FFG does. Um, but uh, yeah, at the time we couldn't really do much with it, but we talked about it a lot. And he shared with me a, uh, a book that he had been reading called The Responsible Company um, by uh, Yvonne Schwinnard, uh, the founder of Patagonia. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Patagonia. They're like an outdoor That's the jackets, right? Company. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah okay. jackets, fleeces, you know, nice. They, they try to do, uh, you know, try, try to do things sustainably, source things sustainably. And uh, he wrote this book called The Responsible Company, that, which talked about their journey and uh, his philosophy in, in, when it comes to making consumer goods. And uh, something he said in that book really uh, stuck with me and uh, or struck a chord with me and then has stuck with me ever since is that uh, he talked about humanity being a you know creative species like our like so many of us want to go out and make things like mm. we're not we don't feel fulfilled unless we're going out and, and making something cool so uh but he's also recognized the fact that when we when we make things we're using the resources of the earth to do that there's no other way to do it we we live on earth um everything comes from here uh so in his mind you know we're always doing some amount of harm to the earth uh but the question is, how much harm are we doing when we make something? Hmm. And the goal of Patagonia uh, and his goal was to, when we make things, to do as little harm as possible. So that really struck me. And I was thought, wow, that's cool. Like to just acknowledge the fact that, yeah, we are making things and we are pulling resources from the earth. But then just to do that considerately, uh, I think, is something that a lot of people just don't take that step. So, um when I started thinking about, you know, my own breaking off on my own and doing my own thing, publishing games myself, I started to think about, okay, well, if I'm not constrained by, uh, you know, a corp, a corporation who has, is beholden <laughs> okay. to its shareholders, you know, you need to make as much money as possible. That's mm-hmm. all part of the charter, right? So, uh, part of the mission statement. Um, so going off on my own, knowing I didn't need to do that, I was like, well, all right, what is the least harm that I could do in making a game? And uh, that really just kind of step, set me going uh, when I started to uh, conceptualize Earthborn Rangers. I'd like to pivot a little bit towards the narrative side of things, because um, my impression uh, is that Earthborn Rangers is very much uh, a sort of amalgam, both of its ideals in terms of storytelling, but also, you know, its production journey. What came first? Was it Were, were you interested in that side of like, fiction or did you have an interest in that side of fiction because would also would it be unfair to label i know that you know labels are labels but uh from what i understand it's sort of working in the genre that's now called solar punk so Mm. would you would you ascribe that label to it i wouldn't i I think looking at solar punk and the definition of solar punk it doesn't quite fit but it's as if you if you need to do a shorthand for it, I guess it's as good okay. as any. <laughs> uh, solar punk, from what I can tell, is a is a little bit more of like um, kind of a technological utopia. Mm-hmm. 
And while there is technology in Rangers, um, it's the, all the technology in this setting uh, still requires human effort. So mm. it 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 where it's not like a utopian a utopian setup like you might find in Solar Punk where there's a bunch of automation and things just happen, but it's all being done clean and and with renewable energy and there's mm. these gleaming glass structures and everything like that. No, it's more of a uh, more of a return to manual labor <laughs> mm. and being connected with the earth. Mm. Um, but we still have tech, but they still have technology and they use that technology to aid them in their labor, but that all requires a human hand. There's no, there's no automation or, uh, industrialization of any kind. Was that setting, uh, something that felt like a natural accompaniment to what you were trying to do or, or were the two more connected? Because I know, I know, like a lot of a lot of um, you know fiction authors are trying to write within a, within similar trappings, even if it's not solo punk. You know, you have something mm-hmm. like uh, Becky Chambers did a two part series on it, and Mike Carey wrote a trilogy called The Book of Coley that's sort of working in the same general cool. area of fiction. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting that because I've been I have been asked this question before, and honestly, it's all kind of blurred together in my mind like I feel like the two things uh really came up simultaneously it wasn't really intentional that the setting would match the ecological sustainability goals of the company as Mm -hmm. well as it did it just kind of happened that way um and uh I mean it's a nice convergence of the two things for sure but it was it was definitely not planned it's just kind of where my my imagination went as we were creating uh because you know in addition to the sustainability goals of earthborn games uh, part of our mission to do every one of our products to make them as sustainable sustainably as possible uh, i also wanted to change what essentially change what the expectation is from uh from players from as far as what they get in terms of narrative um because i feel like so much of our narratives are around conflict and strife and violence and human beings being terrible to each other uh and i wanted to get away from all of that um and in doing so i this is the story and this is the setting that we ended up coming coming up with uh, and it's, it speaks to me really, uh, uh poignantly. Um, so I, I really enjoy, um, creatively and um, inhabiting this world and imagining it. And, uh, when, when I'm really in the groove, like, I feel like I am in that place and can see the things and can, can feel the feelings of what this mm. world would be like. And it feels really nice. So <laughs> trying to convey all of that as much as possible uh, has been a, a major goal over the past couple of years. But yeah, the, the, the two things, while they're related, um, it was not part of some master plan at all. Uh, <laughs> we, I was very open to all sorts of different ideas for stories and settings uh, going into this and then just you know ended up landing on, on Earthborn, um, uh, not only as the name of the company, but also as the setting. Because originally that wasn't the case. I was actually speaking with... a a former coworker uh, at FFG telling him about the uh, telling him about the company, and told him that we'd come up with a name is going to be Earthborn, and he's like, "Oh, that'd be a great name for a game." I was like, "Oh yeah, <laughs> that would be a good name for a game." And then, <laughs> then it kind of took off from there. Honestly, I'm so glad you said that. We were just talking uh, on our previous episode to Zoe B about what board games can teach us. She talked about the film Arrival, where 
um, they were trying to teach like uh, an alien, basically aliens uh, via chess. And uh, the immediate problem with that is that uh, chess embodies conflict. So mm-hmm. one of the things you're inadvertently teaching people is we like conflict. We're, we resolve things via <laughs> conflict, right? Uh-huh. And, and, and I think there is, uh, there is that sense, like if we don't do conflict with board games, then how, how do we express them? You know, how do you win, right? right. So uh, how, how do you win in Earthborn Rangers? <laughs> and, and what I mean by that is like, how do you express tension? without a lack mm-hmm. of like direct conflict and how do you express a sense of achievement there's uh, definitely a lot of tension in the game when you are trying to uh, there's there are goals you're trying to accomplish so mm. there are missions that you'll receive when you play the game uh there's side activities to do um and you can stack up any number of those things uh, in your effectively in your active uh mission area um, and make it as challenging as you as you want to try. The more of those things you have out there, the more difficult your game is going to be. The way that the game interacts with the like the world interacts with the players, um, it's more like a I don't know if you want to call it like a barrier or a soft barrier between you and your goals. Um, but the tension of the game is often trying to accomplish as much as possible in a game session um, with before your time runs out. Uh, and you can opt into how much of a challenge you want to make that. Like if you, if you have one mission you're trying to accomplish, some of them are pretty, are pretty tough. Um, but oftentimes if you just have one in your active mission slot, uh, you can just focus all your attention on trying to get that thing done. And then as things come into your field of view, uh, in the world, the, they demand your attention. Um, so they just really are trying to, in some ways, I guess, distract you from your main goal mm. uh, and sometimes those can be npcs coming into play offering you a, another thing to do and you have to ask yourself uh should we take this on we already doing this uh sure yeah let's try to do that and you throw it in there and it creates this extra layer of complication um but the uh the conflict is more um uh i think i guess you'd say it's more indirect it's not a game that's set up structurally as you know and i think the, the best examples are games like Marvel Champions or uh, or Arkham Horror, the card game. Um, you know, these Earthborn Rangers is you know descended along that those same lines, but those games have very clear like you're set in opposition against a thing, mm. and that is the one thing that Earthborn Rangers lacks is you're you're not set against this other force that is trying to, you know enact its evil plan or thwart you in doing what you're trying to do. Instead, uh, you have the goal that you're trying to accomplish and then complications can be introduced, but there's not some evil force that you're, that you're pitted against. So that doesn't have that, that style of inherent conflict that those games have. Um, that being said, you'll, when you're playing the game, uh, you'll definitely start to feel some adversarial feelings towards some of the uh, the various beings that come across your path. Like, ah, oh, this guy again, or like this thing. Oh, geez. Um, and that's a lot of fun when that happens too. So uh, yeah, the game just structurally is not set up for conflict. But I would say that there are, that depending upon your attitude, you might feel uh, aggressive towards certain things for sure. <laughs> um, 
Gosh. Oh, God. Sorry. No, I'm already like I can. Sorry, I'm breaking. I'm breaking the interview because like I, I want this. This is so my jam. To answer your second portion of your question, like how do you win? Uh, that was a big question during the crowdfunding campaign. Um, and did you, so did you say, did you back it? Does yeah, that... I did. Of course. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Thank you. No. That's awesome. I didn't realize that. But uh, yeah, so the, the so yeah, we talked about this during the um, the crowdfunding campaign because uh, people were like, ah, you know, what's the point? Is it just like a narrative storytelling game? There's no tension. Like it doesn't matter. Um, and I can definitely see where people would have that perspective given the games that are currently available and, you know, not having played the game and knowing, you know, how it actually feels, uh, you might draw those conclusions. But I would say, you know, you, you, you quote unquote, win the game by feeling good about what you accomplished. Hmm. Uh, there are definitely moments in the game where I've, cause I've played through the campaign a couple of times myself, where uh, there are moments that really felt like losing. <laughs> hmm. That really, really did. Uh, but you know, you keep, you keep playing, um, uh, after that loss happens. Um, and it's, uh, I think, you know, fail forward is often the, the term that's used, but it's, there's really not, I would say like black and white f- failure or success in, in Rangers. It's more of, of trying to, uh, you have, you might have a narrative goal in mind, mm. an ending in mind that you're for a mission or, or for the entire campaign that you'd like to achieve, and if you don't achieve that specific ending or mission, that might feel like a loss to you, like you didn't win. Mm. But in the end, I, I think uh, it may be uh, cheesy to say, but I think the, 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 in the end, if you, you win, if you had a good time playing the game and had a, 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 an enriching experience. And ultimately, that's the goal of Rangers is to be um, enriching to your life. Um, uh, and for it to be meaningful to you. So if, if we achieve that, then that's winning to me. I don't think that's cheesy at all. I think that just sounds like, you know, something we haven't seen a lot of and it's exciting. So you said you haven't got a lot of copies for retail. Um, and that immediately makes me think that the plan is to, you know, like like a lot of publishers these days who publish via crowdfunding to go to a reprint campaign or something like that. Can you speak to how, uh, what are, you know, positive or negative aspects of being crowdfunded in terms of, you know, making a sustainable product? Is there something to that or? Yeah. I mean, I, I think like it's key. I mean, I, I, uh, when, when I was talking about this premise with, you know, bef- bef- you know, back it's end of 2019, um, after I'd, uh, put in my notice at Asmodee and was start talking to starting to talk to some people in the industry about what my plans were. Uh, there's a lot of skepticism about whether or not uh, consumers would even care, and that's kind of the 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 overriding, at least at the time. That's you know four years ago at this point. Um, but that's uh, at the time that was a an argument that kept coming up over and over again when I talk about what we're doing is like, you know, like people, I just don't think people care enough. They just want a game. They don't, they don't care that it's done sustainably. They don't care how it's made. They just want the thing. And I just kept saying, well, I, I care. (laughs) So there must be, there must be other people who also care, uh, whether or not it's a selling point for them, uh, we'll see. But, um, I think that's the issue with trying to, to not do it at crowdfunding is you need to convince 
the people who hold the control over the budget um, that it's worth doing. And when they look at the numbers and just say, well, that's four to five times more expensive than what we're paying right now. Hmm. Uh, you shouldn't do that. Then you're like, oh, okay, I guess, you know, cause you're not in control. Hmm. Um, so going to crowdfunding and then, you know, pitching people on, on the idea and trying to make it as, you know, make the vision as extreme as it possibly could. Uh, I think that really did, uh, get a lot of people excited just to see if we could do it. Um, so for, for us, uh, I really feel like crowdfunding was, um, incredibly important. I, I really don't know if we'd be able to, there was, there's no publisher going as far as we are right now, uh, in this space. So I, I don't think we would have been able to, um, fulfill the vision to the degree that we did, uh, if not for crowdfunding. Uh, hmm. We definitely have to make concessions uh, if we went to a, another publisher, 100%. I mean, I presume that by by being this extreme, you're basically planting a flag and saying to other publishers, hey, you could do this too. So uh, have you had anyone approach you about advice or like, did anyone want to learn from, um, you know, and implement things that you implemented into their products? Uh, so no one has really reached out to me, you know, since we've, um, uh, finished production. I'm hopeful that, you know, once the game is out there more, like it really, we've only finally just begun fulfilling, uh, in the EU, um, like this past week. So, you know, we're, we're in the second week of August. So in that first week of August, last week of, of July, games finally started to go out and um, it'll be available in the EU uh, and retail um, hopefully uh, sometime this month. At that point, hopefully it'll start landing in other people, in, in decision makers at other publishers' hands to see if it's something they might want to explore. Uh, I, again, I think they'll be really scared off by the sticker, sh- the sticker <laughs> shock of how, how expensive it was to make. Um, but uh Pretty much right away, though, when we did the uh, did the campaign back in 2021, um, Jamie Stegmeyer reached out to me, uh, and he and I had not had had any kind of uh, previous relationship, um, but he was really inspired by uh, by the mission, and um, thought it was really cool. And then you know helped uh, promote the crowdfunding campaign on his blog, uh, which was uh, it was really gracious of him. Um, and then in the, uh, the months immediately after that, then, uh, he announced that they were going, then, then he did this kind of audit of all of their games, uh, to see, you know, materially what could be changed from plastic to wood or, um, and, uh, and then, uh, maybe about a year later, a year and a half, he, he announced that they were going to all FSC paper, going to wood instead of plastic where possible. They're working with Panda manufacturing who is now doing FSC certification at their, at at least one of their factories. Um, so, uh, so that's probably the, the biggest one was just Stonemaier Mm -hmm. games. Um, That's a pretty big uh, one, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was great. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you know, he's, you know, uh, Jamie's, you know, very opinionated and, uh, he's, you know, he's never afraid to share his opinions and thoughts on things. So I think it's really cool that he's out there also banging the drum. Um, I think that's great. Uh, but yeah, no one's really reached out at this point. Um, there's, uh, also recently there's been this, uh, there's this thing called the green games guide that mm-hmm. was posted by a group that talks about, you know, the things that, that one can do to make, uh, games more sustainable. Um, 
and I think it's I think it's all good that that they're looking more at how things are sourced. Uh, but Earthborn really takes things the next step where I, I'm really looking at then what happens to our games once once they're done. You know, once you've yes. completed playing them, you know, they're sitting on a shelf. Um, you know, we <laughs> this is maybe this is where the where the conversation gets a little darker, but you know, we all pass away, you know, uh, we're all going to die eventually. Um, our, in our, our belongings then pass on to our, our children or our friends or whoever we leave them to. Um, and then where do they go from there? You know, like there's, there's no guarantee that your descendants are going to care about your game collection. Uh, and or there'll be anyone to to buy it or anyone will even want it. So like I, I think ultimately I, I in addition to you know to sourcing responsibly and manufacturing responsibly, I, I really want uh, our games to then you know eventually completely disappear from the face of the earth. Uh, mm. <laughs> you know, given given a long enough timeline. Um, so it's so that was why it was really important to me to not have any plastic in it. And I think that's the that's the step that I think a lot of companies aren't yet ready to take is that, you know, they're happy to source FSC paper, but then they'll still put like a UV coating on it. Yeah. Uh, which is a, which is plastic. So like, you know, almost every game you own, you know, nine, like a, a tremendous percentage of them, you know, I don't have official numbers, but I would be willing to bet nine out of 10, if not more, uh, all the paper in it is coated in plastic. So it makes it, impossible or almost impossible to recycle like so much so that you know recycling centers just won't take it like uh you know so it's not only that it's also like the you know the cards that are um you know have the black or gray core Mm -hmm. uh those feel those feel nice and they have a nice little you know snap to them yeah uh but you know those are completely not recyclable because it's just got this big you know wad of adhesive in between two pieces of paper uh and then those two pieces of paper are then coated in plastic so I think that's something that a lot of people just don't consider um, is where the games go afterwards, because we like to think that we're making these artifacts that will last all for all time. And that's the goal. And I just don't think that's important. Yeah, that's a weird thing that I've encountered. And 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 I, I, I have played, um, you know, and own some games that are made entirely out of plastic. And, and oh, the, yeah, I, me too. The idea there is that, like, oh yeah, you know, in five hundred years' time, your descendants can have what? Like, <laughs> what is that? Why is that? In uh, five hundred years' time, what will people like when we look at the Goose Game? Right? Do we think, oh yeah, I, I really wish I had like an original copy of <laughs> the Goose Game? I mean, maybe for monetary reasons, but what what is that? Why why do you, I'm not I'm not really asking this question. <laughs> why why do humans have this sort of like incredible need to persist so far beyond themselves and and like it's not i I, like if i buy a game i didn't make this i'm ranting now i know i'm sorry like (laughs) like it's not an artifact of me like i get i get passing down like you know some records to you know my direct descendant who can then go oh that was my you know dad's or mom's you know music he or she listened to it you know like Mm -hmm. that's nice but yeah, no, sorry. I'm going to cut that out. But it just winds me up so much. <laughs> well, I think it's important. I don't think you need to cut it out because I think that's a, I think it's a interesting conversation to have and I think it's an important one to have because I think so much 
of, uh, I guess what you call geek culture surrounds this, uh, this kind of this collector's mentality Hmm. where you just buy the thing and you put it on the shelf and you may never take it out of the shrink. You know, I have games still shrunk, shrunk wrapped. Why do I have those games? I don't know. Cause I haven't <laughs> given them to somebody yet. I, but right now they're just sitting wrapped in plastic in my, on my shelf. Why? Just because, but I think, you know, there's lots of people who, you know, they, they want this, you know, museum to their interests and that's just cool to them to have this thing that, that exists. And I think when you introduce the idea that it is, the object is subject to time hmm. and decay, then they kind of bristle. And I think, uh, and I think that the, the thing there is, you know, some people think, you know, that, you know, uh, vegetable plastics, biodegradable plastics are inferior um, because they, they imagine that, oh, if I have this miniature in a biodegradable plastic, then it'll just like fall apart on the shelf or something. Mm -hmm. um, not really realizing that it will last your entire lifetime uh, unless you work really hard to destroy it. <laughs> it's not going to go anywhere. Same thing with, with Earthborn Rangers too. If you protect it and, and keep it, keep it in good shape, you know, store it in a, in a, uh, in a nice dry place then it'll, it'll be, it, you know, it'll stay in great shape as long as you, as long as you use it. But the, the idea is as long as you, you know, as long as you want it to. Um, but this idea that it needs to persist beyond us is, uh, I feel like, uh, I don't know, it's just not necessary. And uh, I think it leads to a lot of poor decisions. And I think that's partially, you know, why we've gotten to this point where we're embalming all of our paper products in plastic is mm. to, you know, make them last longer and longer. Um, when in reality, I think they last just as long without it. And honestly, I, I like the things I, in my collection that I have the most affinity for are the ones that show wear. Mm. Like my old, you know, original like Dungeons and Dragons box set. Like that's not in pristine condition at all. But I love it because it shows that wear of time. Andrew, thank you so much. Where can people find out more about Earthborn Rangers? You can find out more at earthborngames.com. Uh, that is, I think, the best place for information. You can sign up to our mailing list um, and get notified uh, once the game is available. Um, it should start, it's, it's going out to backers right now, and the, it will continue for the next several months as it moves its way from Europe across the ocean to the United States. And uh, uh, you can also you know, check out our Kickstarter project page if you'd like to read read about it there and see where it started and then compare that to where we got to. <laughs> there are some changes along the way, but uh, I think it's all, all for the better. But yeah, earthborngames.com is the best place. And you can also follow us on social media and YouTube and stuff like that. If you'd like to hear more from Andrew Navarro, it's in our Patreon-only bonus episode. This was a very long interview, and we had to split it up into two. I tried to keep the best and most interesting bits in the main episode, but there's some great stuff in the bonus episode as well. And also in the bonus episode, we have our impressions of Armin Ray 20th Anniversary Edition as a two-player game and how that went. Uh, and also, we briefly speak about uh, my first play of Dual Gage. 
Our last game of the episode is Eon's End Legacy of Gravehold, which comes from publisher Indie Boards and Cards by designers Sidney Engelstein, Nick Little and Kevin Riley with unlisted artists. Ooh, the mysterious unlisted artists. On Board Game artists. Geek it says N-A oh. under artists. No art. <laughs> no art, no. Well, it's strange because one of the most immediate pieces of art was like, oh, this is bordering on copyright infringement because it looks exactly like Doctor Strange, but just significantly different enough to not be Doctor Strange. I kept calling it Tesco Value Doctor Strange. Uh, I'm not sure that's okay. Let's not get sued by Tesco. Eon's End Legacy of Gravehold is a legacy game, and it is also going to serve this bit specifically as our impressions of Eon's End as a system, because we've never played it before, and it is a moderately popular deck-building game that had many expansions by now and also this is the second legacy box this isn't even the first time that eons and legacy has appeared so clearly enough demand and enjoyment of the eons and system from people we thought hey what's the best way to experience this why not the latest Let's have the butchers at this one. yeah why not the latest legacy thing it's gonna include you know hopefully the best of the best the the weirdest ideas the most grandiose expression of the system let's try it i guess what's weird is that we never looked at it before well you know i've i i had a pretty strong dislike of deck building games for Mm. a while and i've spoken about them at length and what i like and what i don't like about them um you know mostly they they fall into i don't want to joseph campbell it here but it is pretty much the hero's journey in board game form and you know mixed feelings about that sometimes it's enjoyable sometimes it's good i think my best experience of a deck building game is when it knows it's the hero's journey and really leans into it or when it completely tries to buck that trend um so you know when it swings either way really really hard that's that's when i like it i'm not sure eons end does that it kind of falls into a rhythm of of a very standard deck builder but with a couple of significant twists that on the face of it seem more interesting than they actually are so um first of all this is a cooperative deck building game you play as mages that try to cast spells and, and you're generally trying to defeat an enemy at least that's how it works in legacy of gravehold you have a nemesis and that nemesis has a life total and that nemesis will summon minions uh, cast persistent effects um, that you have to deal with and then also just do attacks which are just like one-off instantaneous bad things that happen to you and you play as mages you also have um, a life total you, you don't want to both lose your life because th- then you lose um, you all, th- your kind of base called Gravehold also has a life total if, if that goes down then then you lose right and then you have the deck building where you have gems that will generate ether not mana which you know will let you buy cards from the shop that go into your deck and you're constantly cycling through your deck casting these spells playing these gems you also have these relics which are these sort of ancillary effects and and hopefully one of you get will get there first either the computer or the players um, so the kooky thing about this is that unlike other deck building games, 
you never shuffle your deck. What you put in your discard pile stays in the order you put it in your discard pile. And when your deck runs out, you just flip your discard pile and then Draw keep drawing. Yeah. So this sounds slightly more gamey than it actually is because on the face of it, you are kind of forced to think about um, w- how will I order my cards. But in reality, I found that like it, it doesn't matter so much um, because... Uh, some cards go in there in a specific order anyway, and then you only think about it at the end of the round, which is you pass the round so another player can pretty much do things whilst you're thinking about that. So it it doesn't bog up the game that much, but also the choice isn't that consequential. The, The other weird thing about this game is that the turn order is random. So, uh, you have a turn order deck, uh, and it has in a two-player game, six cards in it. So it has two-player one cards, two-player two cards, and two nemesis cards. And you draw the card off the top, and then whatever is on the card, that's that player's turn, or the robot's turn. And, um, you know, you go through that deck, you shuffle it again, then start again. So sometimes you can predict, like, for example, if you've drawn the first two nemesis cards as the first two cards of that deck, you know you're going to have at least four turns because after that, you're going to shuffle your deck. You might go again. You might have eight turns in a row. You never know, but... You're not going to shuffle your deck. You're going to shuffle the turn order the deck. The turn order deck. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You 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 never know quite how it's going to play out, but you have some like rough ideas basically as to whose turn it will most likely be next. Yeah. I want to pick up on what you said about it's inconsequential about how you, the order in which you place your cards in the discard, because uh, I thought, ah, well, it feels inconsequential now, but maybe when I've got loads of cards, then it won't feel so inconsequential. But the thing is, after every scenario, you mm-hmm. put all the cards back apart from your starting cards. So you never end up like with a lot of good cards or a, a lot of new cards. Mm. Um, it's not like you're building up from scenario to scenario. So you're right. Um, I never felt that what I, the order that I was placing them in the discard was that important well actually i think the more cards you have the less consequential it is because you start with 10 cards in your deck five in your hand five in the deck right and so with multiples of five it's pretty easy to predict the rhythm well the first five are this so i'll draw that next and then the next five are these so i'll draw these next right but as soon as you add card number 11 like everything shifts so if you try to keep track of that right because you have one card on top and then you draw the next four cards not the five cards right and and everything kind of you know jigs out of order as it were and it's really hard to maintain that constant rhythm of like oh you know if i put it in this order you know this will come out it's actually quite hard to keep track of that yeah Uh, the only time i found it made a difference was i knew that i didn't i know we haven't actually explained really how you play the game yet Mm -hmm. but there are spell slots which you play the cards to which play spell cards to and you can only play spell cards to that slot if it's open Mm -hmm. some of them are closed you start with one open and the only time i found it mattered was when i had more spells that I knew I was going to draw or potentially draw, then I had spell slots open. So I wouldn't have been able to play those spells. So I ordered it in a way that I could do something else first. Mm-hmm. 
So I, I did. It did make a little bit of difference there, but it was it was too much. Honestly, I couldn't keep track of. No, of I, it I think well if, enough. I think if you try and keep track of it, you'll spend too much time fussing with the cards <laughs> and not actually enough time thinking about what you should do in the game. Mm. And so that for me wasn't a gimmick that was particularly interesting. The turn order gimmick was fine. I just found that it it, it kind of swung the game in unpredictable ways. We're suddenly like, oh, we really could do with us being next. But oh, it's the nemesis. And then it's the nemesis again. And that's kind of frustrating. So we won the... So we've only played two games of it so far. Yes. And we won both of those. But I felt like both of those games we won... Because of the turn orders that came out. If the nemesis would have had their turn before we got our turn, mm. we probably, or we not necessarily would have lost, but we would have definitely been in a much worse position. And on our turn, we won because we managed to defeat it. I think that's true for the first game we played. I think the second game, we just crushed it, really. like It wasn't even close. Uh, I, maybe it felt dangerous because the game has this sense of creating an immediacy of danger, which... I want to talk about it in just a bit, right? But it wasn't... I don't think it was even close. I think we we just took that game away. The first game was actually a fantastic ending and, and kind of made me feel really good about the system because there was this basically sense that if the nemesis takes its turn, we are toast. Mm. So we need to just get it down to those last, like, life points within the turns that we have. And then we realized that the next two cards have to be the nemesis card and it was like, I had one turn left and that was it. And I, I didn't have any more spells. But then I dug out this effect on this card that basically said I could cast one of your spells. And that was the exact right amount of damage we needed. It was, it was just a perfect confluence of things where for turn and turn, we eked out as much as we could. And then on the last moment, we found a clause that won us the game. And that was kind of nice because it was really really close but I, I didn't feel so much that in the second game and i think again this is a legacy game we're not going to spoil much at all actually any of it just going to talk about the legacy stuff a little bit later in, in general concepts but the quality of the nemesis you're going to face from game to game is going to differ some are going to be harder some are going to be easier and i think where the game shines it is maybe that spell system because it's quite kooky because it doesn't it doesn't let you immediately embody that power fantasy where like, I bought the powerful card, I'm going to do it now. No, you have to, it's a spell, you have to prepare it in advance. So as you mentioned, you have these breaches. You start the game with hopefully at least one open, but then others you have to focus, meaning you have to spend your ether, your resource that you buy cards with, to turn these square tiles around until they reach the top side and some of these breaches are better than others but they're more expensive to turn around you don't have to turn them around you can open them uh when they're not fully turned but they're a lot more expensive yes so th there is a lot of variability in that and and also if you have a close breach but on that turn you turn it you can prepare a spell into it but you'll be forced to cast it next turn otherwise other spells you can just keep in those breaches i'm getting into the weeds of it but the point is that you have to have spaces to actually play these cards that do damage and do the powerful effects. And when you play them to these spaces, they don't even do anything yet. You have to wait till your next turn, which you don't know when it's going to come because the turn order is random, right? So oftentimes you're sitting there out of turn with this 
bomb that you've loaded, right? And you're just like, come on, me, 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 <laughs> me, me, me. Yes, it's me. <laughs> I did notice your callback to Bill Murray, by the way. I did that didn't pass over my head. The toast mm-hmm. saying that we were going to be toast. That was nice. Well mm. done. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I I didn't enjoy this game. No, not no, at all. Not a lot. Um, I learned something about myself, uh, which is that I am maybe not suited to learning from rule books of legacy games. I cannot get my head. I could not get my head around this game. And I have struggled in the past with it's not the rule books fault. I have struggled in the past with other rule books for legacy games because they don't they can't give you all the information they can't mm. front load all that information like a normal rule book can um and i had to pass it on to you i said to you it was a bit like if if you learned loads of words from a dictionary uh, in a in whatever language and then someone said okay have a conversation in this language you couldn't because you just know a load of random words and you don't know how they join together and that was how i felt when i but read this but you didn't struggle with it no it was, okay it was quite good so i want to pivot just just a little bit back one final criticism about the system in general but we're sort of veering now into the legacy thing so please when we're done remind me Afka, talk about the rule book and the legacy stuff okay 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 so my final criticism of the system as a whole, just eons end, is that a lot of it falls into the cooperative genre of putting out fires. And and that's these the sort of systems that like create a lot of immediate dangers, but give you a big goal and say, there's this danger and there's that danger and there's that danger. If you don't take care of them, things are going to get worse. But also worry about this big picture thing overall. And you're like okay right and and each time a nemesis turn comes there's more dangers it activates all the dangers and now there's another danger right deal with it so you could deal damage to the nemesis but there's also minions if you don't take out the minions they have effects every turn take them out right now you know so i'm not the biggest fan of of that trope of yeah cooperative games especially because it doesn't strangely doesn't even feel like you're putting out fires because in in all the games we played which i appreciate is just two it felt like mostly you are firefighting whilst you are doing the deck building but then we went against to that critical mass of my deck is doing things you ignore the fires entirely Mm. and just go bam 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 can i get there fast enough yeah it's fun isn't it because uh you are literally putting out some fires in this game that's true. There, Parts of the, the town can be put on fire. Th- there is a mechanism that says <laughs> there's fires and you, you could put, put them out with a spell called Douse. Anyway, as promised, some criticism of the legacy stuff. Non-spoiler, we're not going to spoil anything. Um, so, um, Legacy of Greyhold does a bold thing from the beginning. It says there's two factions, pick one of them. Um, if you're not familiar with the narrative of the game, it does some work to kind of bring you up to speed with what's, brief, yeah, it, with what's happened in, yeah. in, in this world in the past. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of says there's these two factions. One of them is the Order and not none of the bad magic faction. And the other is, well, maybe maybe some of the bad magic, you know, <laughs> like maybe mm. just a little bit of the bad magic because that's kind of like balances things out, you know. Um, so these are the two factions and you're immediately forced without knowing what's inside 
to pick one of them, you know, and you are going on a journey through that faction. And I think that's very interesting because it determines what characters are available at the start of the game uh, and, and what cards will be available to yeah. you and what abilities will be available to you that's really cool you know we picked we picked the maybe some of the bad magic uh faction and and i don't know what we would have been playing with yeah, had we gone the other way be very different yeah from other people's games yeah so, i like that so that was immediately cool and it it does a good drip feed of new things so far we always felt like after every game there's something new something cool to explore you know like new ideas and new things and new twists to the formula it it feels fresh so far so that all of that is fine it's definitely not the worst legacy game i've played that's charterstone um there's there's better ones there's worse ones but it's competent as a legacy yeah game. but whilst it's competent in in delivering new things i don't think it's very competent at being a good experience in terms of a legacy game so you mentioned the rule book right and and i have to say it's not i don't think it's just you in terms of i'm, I'm finding it hard to pass this i like i got it right because i was when i was reading the rule book i kept thinking right Deck building tropes, deck building tropes, yeah, deck building tropes. How does this helps. work in the context of deck building tropes? And I thought I understood how the game plays, and I did. But then as I started playing, especially like the legacy stuff, there was just so much stuff that wasn't explained or explained in a way that no legacy game should have explained. So, for example, again, not spoilers. It says often through the game, put things in your barracks. And then you go... But the rulebook doesn't say what the barracks is. <laughs> and then you realize that amongst the many packs of cards, many, many, many packs of cards that says, do not look until told to, right? There is this pack of cards that isn't cards, it's dividers. And these dividers is the storage solution for how you meant to store this legacy game in between games. That's what it means by the barracks, that you're meant to assemble this. But Nowhere need, does it say that. You need that a lot clearer. In a game where you must not open things until you're told you can open them, it needs to be clearer what you are allowed to open right, right now. Yeah, so that wasn't great. The second thing is using terms like destroy in a legacy game that don't mean rip things up. Because if you've played a legacy game, you'll be like, destroy. Oh, that means that you are meant to, you know, remove this from the game. No, that's banish. Um, again, that's not explained clearly in the rulebook mm. because the rulebook literally says, oh, destroy means remove from the game. What it actually means, remove from this session. So yeah. uh, destroy, when you destroy a card, it just means you remove it from your deck circulation. If you destroy a rift, uh, which happens when your character is exhausted and runs out of life, that doesn't mean the character permanently loses the access to that rift. It just means that for this game, they won't be able to use it. Nowhere is that made clear. And that's just bad. That's very bad, especially using a term like destroy, which could literally lead a person to rip up a card. Mm, I, I think that is partly what led me to not enjoy this game so much because we did end up looking up a lot of rules mm. and trying to figure out between us and, and through Board Game Geek uh, what 
some of the terminology and the rules meant. And and I think that's fine. Like you, you get that sometimes in a game. And I said this to you, you know, you get that sometimes in a game where the, your first game is a little bit like, okay, I, I'm, I'm learning how all these systems work. But in a legacy games where those systems are constantly changing and being updated, even when you learn this set of rules, that's not going to help you for necessarily for the rest of, of the games. Uh, that you play or the next games that you play so we got stuck in the wool of this game quite a a lot and it slowed it down and then the resolution like you said you know there's a lot of firefighting but in the end you're not you're just going for the big thing Mm -hmm. and it it just i just didn't find it fun and i'm i'm yeah, it just wasn't a good experience for me. So I want to talk about a few more uh, things about the legacy stuff. There's just one positive, one negative, right? So uh, the negative thing uh, relating to like the very first scenario. Again, I'm not going to spoil it, but I will say um, that one of the immediate kind of legacy feeling things in the game was something that was also very clearly prep for an encounter you're going to have way down the line, mm. right? So it's like, I hear this cool, here's this cool new system that is very poorly explained. It just kind of leads you to interpret it because it's trying to make it mysterious, but it doesn't work. It's not mysterious. It's, it's just confusing. confusing. But also when your very first scenario is, oh, you know, something's going to happen later down the line and what you do now matters. It's like, but I want this to matter, right? I don't want to prep myself on the very first thing that I do for this future thing. I, I want to experience this and what this can offer. So it didn't, it didn't put its best foot forward there, right. right? But when it comes to the positives, I will say that one of the things it does really well was the narrative didn't, impress me much to borrow from shania twain um (laughs) there was a very clear sense of characterization and i got a pretty clear picture of who all the characters were and how they work together how they work together what they were like Mm. what their opinions and positions of things were uh, and that didn't necessarily mesh with what they did mechanically but it didn't matter like i get who these people are I get what they like, I get what they're doing, and I get why they're doing it. And that is a great thing for a legacy narrative to kind of propel you through the story, which is, you know, run-of-the-mill, bare-bones fantasy stuff. But but, but it was clear run-of-the-mills, bare-bones fantasy stuff with a lot of proper nouns that don't mean anything, you know, like Zargsos or, you know, Kel... One of the characters called Kel. I said, my signature move is going to be Kel Surprise. Nice, nice. Yeah. I played a character called Chew. Well, it, the pronunciation isn't clear. I think it's Chew because it's Q-U. So Q-I is Chi. So Q-U would be Chew. Well, no? I mean, depends, right? On what well, it's my li- character. Right, okay. But you, you said initially Q. I thought it was, yeah, Q. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But it's Q-U, so it's like Q-U, but the U is superfluous because well, it's still Q. Probably Q is copyrighted by Star Trek. Right, I see, I see. Anyway, um, so yeah, that's that's our initial impressions of Anne's End. And the funny thing about it being a legacy game, and I guess the mistake we made was like, oh, legacy, this is going to be fun, this is going to be a campaign. And then... You start playing it, um, 
and you're like, oh, I'm not enjoying this so much. I don't, I'm not sure I want to finish this massive box. Shall I pass it on to someone else? Oh, wait, I can't, which is something we discussed in the interview with Andrew Navarro. And, and, and it's funny how that kind you of... You can buy reset packs for it. I know that. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Okay. Well, that, they must cost... Or at least you could have done. Yeah. I don't know if, you, if they're still available, but at the time you could have done. They must cost a lot because a lot of those cards are like... There's a, there's a lot that you manipulate. Yeah. There's like stickers and you draw and you write and you cut things up and stuff like that. There's a lot of stuff in there that's, I guess, not resettable. But it's, I'm, I'm glad to hear this. That's at hmm. least a reset. Pack. Well, there was. Yeah, I don't know. Because it's, it's not a new game. You know, it's a few years old by now. So I guess I don't know from still. a sustainability perspective how good that is anyway, because you're just putting more thing into the world and then the next person is going to pick it up and they're going to try it and they're going to go i'm not sure how much i'm enjoying this they're going to buy another <laughs> reset pack and well on it goes well yeah maybe um i don't know if i feel like i've given this game a good enough shakedown do you want to play again i feel like i should because i have a fairly negative view of it at the moment it felt like a lot of admin for not a lot of return that's that was the kind of overall feeling I got from it. Mm. Um, but maybe if you progress further into it, then maybe, you know, you'll see new things and it will be exciting. But I'm, I'm not sure that I have the energy to do that. We did unlock a character. I'm not going to say what it was, we but did. you immediately went, oh, uh, yeah, that's true, oh actually, that looks yeah, cool. Uh-huh. That looks very interesting. Yeah. There was a, an aspect of it that immediately appealed to your personality. Well, so yeah. th- that was neat. Yeah. That's all the games. If you have anything to say about any of them, don't forget to drop me an email, elaine at nopunincluded.com, or if you have any general questions or comments. We had some linguistic questions Uh from the last episode. Uh, Specifically, we were asked about the words jammy and about the word cooey, right? Targaf asked why I called Reiner Knizia jammy when it means unusually lucky, Mm-hmm. Right. It was like, did I really mean that? Um, yes, I did. I was being a bit cheeky uh, when I called him that because firstly, with the insinuation that he got lucky uh, designing this game rather mm. than spending hours playtesting and refining and, you know, doing all of that to, to his games and that he got lucky changing my mind on a certain mechanism rather than that the implementation of that mechanism was just really neat in, in that game. So I was just being a little bit cheeky. Does that make sense? No, but thank you for explaining that. So I don't really mean that he he's unusually lucky or overly lucky. Elaine, he's, he's not. He he put a lot of work into his games. Uh, this particular game had a really cool mechanism in it that just happened to change my mind about uh, auction games. Uh, it's nothing to do with luck. Elaine, I was just being a bit funny. Yeah, Elaine, what? listen. You said the word jammy, yeah. which sounds like jam. Yeah. And I think jam's a funny word. So that's Do all you? I got from that. Do you? Yeah, jammy. Sounds good. Sure, makes sense. I'm good. Thanks. Jam like the fruit sauce or jam like, oh, I'm in a traffic jam. Doesn't matter. It's jam. It's funny. Okay. Jam's a funny word. But um, anyway, cooey is another matter entirely. Um, it seems to be a word that my family made up. All right. Bit. Okay. So long story short... Uh, it's probably an adulteration of Q, 
Kuti as in body lice. Mm-hmm. Um, Exciting origin. Yeah, so ignore that word because that is probably a word that is just used by my family. I asked a couple of friends and they were like, no, what? I've never used this word. Uh, so no one else seems to know this word. What did you mean by cooey? Yucky, icky. Well, like lousy. Mm. Like it makes you feel like you're lousy. Like, uh, you know, like, well, lousy is used to mean uh, like rubbish. Right. Isn't it? Yeah. You know, for the most part. But, you know, lousy is in you full of lice. Yeah. Like it makes you feel itchy and ugh and ugh. Just like I feel in this heat. Yeah. Oh, it's really warm today. Yeah. It's so warm today. Well, yeah, so, you know, come for the board games to this podcast. Stay for the nonsense words that we use. Lastly, Richard uh, writes in to say, how well do you feel that you can assess a game from reading the rule book? What games have been the biggest surprises when then playing them after reading the rule book, positively or negatively? Well, Elaine, you've been the rules master lately. I think that's a question to you. Um. Okay, well, so there, it's not really lately, but... In in the time that we've been reading rule books, there have been certain times where we look at a game and we think, oh, this looks interesting. And then we read the rules for it and think, ugh, this mm. looks not very good. And we've kind of not bothered playing the game because the rule book has put us off. Because certain mechanisms or certain, the, the way it plays does not sound interesting well funny you should say that because some designers are especially known for like having rules that read not very exciting but but then the game emerges from but i don't mean dry rules i'm Mm. all right with dry rules Mm. but it's you know so you you find a mechanism that goes against how you feel as a person like Mm. like i guess it could have happened with something like hegemony where you play a, corpor- a corporation and you think mm. oh i really don't want to play i don't want someone in our play group to have to play as this that's not necessarily a good example because we did play that game we were okay with that but when there is something in the game that makes you think i don't like this mm. um yeah i don't mind dry rules because as long as the rules are laid out well um then that's that's okay with me yeah sometimes the game emerges through the rules um but it's only when you get a really negative feeling about how this works. Or if, if something seems very boring, like it's clear that in the game, you're going to just go round and round and round and mm. round. But and that's that's more to do with the rule set rather than the rule book itself, isn't it? Yes, but, but that means that sometimes we wouldn't necessarily play a game. That's true. That's very true. Yeah, all. Yeah, that's true. I, I don't know. For me, it's... Um, when I don't, I think the opposite is true. When I get a clear sense of what the game is trying to do and how it wants you to approach it, that's when I jive with the rule book. When mm. I don't get that sense, I'm like, this is annoying. Mm. I'm just, I don't want like the, I don't want the game to be mysterious because, because I want it to be clear. I want, the rule book's purpose is is not to cause mystery and confusion. It's to cause clarity. The mystery and confusion can come from the gameplay. That's where that needs to emerge. And and one of the most egregious examples of this is Etherfields, where the rule book I hazard a guess allegedly by me, uh, you know I'm making the allegation, uh, was deliberately made to be confusing to fall in step with the tone and theme of the game, which. I found obnoxious. 
they're just genuinely obnoxious. Mm, I think, um, I guess, recently, relatively recently, so a game like Sky Mines, uh, when I read the rule book, I didn't quite understand what was going to happen in the game. I didn't get a feel for the game. Mm. But so it, because the rule book is quite dry, I guess, mm. but it still seemed interesting. Uh, and then when we played, I mean, I've played Mombasa before, so it yeah. was similar. I knew I knew roughly what it was going to be like, so that did help. But I think the impression I got from the rule book was quite different from the gameplay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I enjoyed the gameplay a lot more than I thought I would from mm. the rules. Well, that's good. That's but the 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 point of that though was that you got a clearer picture of how to play, mm. and then the gameplay kept the surprises. Yes. Right. That's precisely it. Whereas with Etherfields, I read the rule book and I had no idea how to play. And I played the game and it confused me even more because it didn't fall in <laughs> step with what the rule book was saying. That's not helpful. That is not it's helpful at all. It's a technical manual. We need it to yeah. tell us what to do. I mean, it can excite you, but it still needs to be clear, right? Those two things are not necessarily mutually exclusive. So you like it if a rule book excites you. Is that what you're saying? I mean, it's fine. Yeah, if if... I, I don't necessarily crave it, but if it wants to be a little bit playful, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I think w- w- some of the best rule books um, are are for things like uh, Blood on the Clock Tower, where the rule book's purpose isn't just to teach the rules of the game, but it is to make you understand the intention of the mm. game. It's like, this is how play looks like. This is what you're expected to do this is how you're expected to engage with the game and it even gives you strategy tips and ideas right i know that some designers really wanted to be like no i want the people to find everything out for themselves but people approach games in very different ways right and i don't think i i I mean i certainly appreciate uh some rule books do this when there's a little bit at the end that says strategy tips honestly for my money that could be expanded to like a couple of pages, right? Somewhere at the back or even in a separate booklet. But someone says something that says, hey, if you're enjoying this and you kind of want to find out more about how you can interact with this game strategically, here's like, you know, stuff, right? You don't have to look at it. Yeah. But if you want to, here it is. Yeah, exactly. And there are very few games that do this. There are some. But when they do this, I appreciate it so much because then it's like, oh, hey, I can actually, you know, I don't have to go on BGG or whatever and read someone's idea on what the strategy for this game is. Um, I don't have to fall into lockstep with the zeitgeist or whatever. I, I, I can just kind of engage with it on my own terms with some information that's provided to me by people who've worked on this game. You know, I actually thinking about it i don't like a rule book that is whimsical mm. I, I dislike that quite a lot like with that time you killed me mm-hmm. I, that, that it had little sentences that were whimsical but they weren't clearly differentiated from the rules so i was reading them with as much attention as i was reading the rules and and i, it, I didn't like that i, I don't I'd, I'd rather the rule book was dry gave examples like we're good rule book you know gives mm. examples tells you how to play the game uh like you said tells you the flow the intention la 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 but don't you don't need to put fluff in there to in, engage me 
I think that's a really great criticism, but also the theme, or more specifically the setting of That Time You Killed Me, makes no sense whatsoever. So when it's trying to be whimsical, it doesn't feel tonally apt, because it's like, what is this? There's like chess pieces. We're not time traveling. Why are you, why are you whimsying me with this, right? <laughs> it's annoying. Whereas I think if if the game was more cohesive with its tone setting you know, and, and what it's trying to get you to do, then the whimsy might even come naturally and would feel appropriate to the rule book. I think we've answered that question. I think that was actually some interesting discussion that sprang out right at the very end of the episode. I didn't expect it. It was good. I enjoyed talking about this. So finally, what is the game of the episode? Oh, that one's easy. It's Dorf Romantic. What about you? Dorf Romantic. Well, we're in unison. And with that... Why don't you say goodbye, Elaine? Goodbye, Elaine. Goodbye, Elaine.